episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I'm bringing you another episode in the year of polygamy series that we are doing for the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast, where we cover the entire year focusing on the practice of Mormon plural marriage, polygamy, uh, polyandry, whatever you want to call it, celestial marriage, and hopefully help people understand it better, work it out uh, in their minds better, and Hopefully, the goal would be to come to some sort of peace with the practice, as it is upsetting to a lot of people, especially women in the LDS church. So the aim of this series is to help people kind of work out these issues, uh, deal with some hard truths, work them out, and kind of understand how it's in the context of, played out in the context of uh, contemporary Mormon life. So let's get started. Uh, we're going to be talking about a very controversial wife. I think I say that every time. This this wife is often used by critics of Joseph Smith to say that uh, Joseph Smith was some sort of perverted pedophile or fraud because this is one of the younger wives. And again, like I said in the previous podcast, pedophilia, the definition of pedophilia suggests that pedophiles are attracted to prepubescent children. And none of, there's absolutely zero evidence to suggest that Joseph Smith was attracted to prepubescent children. It's just not there. So stop using that word. It is not accurate. It's not an accurate label. Now that we have that out of the way, let's get into the life of Helen Mar Kimball. Now, something that I like about her is, I don't know if you paid attention in the other series, but I've quoted from her every once in a while, and she she's an interesting character to me. She's kind of a paradox because she seems so unhappy with polygamy on the one hand, and yet she is kind of, I'm, I guess the word I I think of when I hear her say, quoting about other women is kind of judgy. She's very judgy if they leave the church. She's judgy if they leave the practice of plural marriage. And so I find that interesting. I don't know where that comes from. I imagine if it were me and I had felt a little bit of resentment giving up so much for polygamy that I might feel others should do the same thing too. And maybe that's where the judginess would come from. Um, you can, you can hear her you know, kind of criticizing some of her friends in the day if they weren't as faithful in the practice as she was. So she's interesting, but you've got to, you got to remember Kimball, the last name Kimball. She's a, she has a famous last name and she would be right at the heart of church history. And well, I guess we'll just let her tell the story. I have Sarah Hanks reading for her today. So thank you so much, Sarah. And let's, let's get into it. Helen Mark Kimball was born on August 20th, 1828 in Menden, Monroe, New York. She would be the third of nine children and her parents were da 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 Heber C. Kimball, the one and only, and Velate Murray Kimball. Some people call her Violet. I, I pronounce it Velate, so I hope that's accurate. Helen would go on to be the only daughter to survive in the family. 
and would become sort of beloved and pampered as a result of that. In 1832, her parents became baptized in the church. They were early, early saints in, in the 30s. Um, when Helen Marr was baptized, she was done so by Brigham Young, and she was famously done so in the Chagrin River during the winter when the river was frozen over. And in order to be baptized, her father had to cut a hole in the ice. So you can imagine what that was like. Helen later wrote that she was not bothered by the cold water because she had longed for this privilege and that she felt no cold or inconvenience from it. The family settled in Kirtland with the rest of the saints, and Helen recounts her time in Kirtland. She would say, There are no doubt many still living who remember the perilous times in Kirtland. I can recollect a time when it was unsafe for a woman or child to be found alone on the street after sundown, and when the graves had to be closely guarded, or they were robbed by students who came from Willoughby and thought it no sacrilege to dissect a Mormon, dead or alive. Her father, Heber, soon was called to as an apostle. And at this time, this involved a lot of time away from the home. And Heber, you know, would spend the majority of his church career away from his family. He was he would go on many missions, and he was traveling a lot, even in, you know, the early days of the church and into the later days of the church. As he gained more prominence and became one of, you know, Joseph's sort of secret uh, main men or a trusted, a trusted general authority or leader, he would be gone more and more and more from the family. I guess with great, great blessings comes more responsibilities. So that that was Heber's lot. Um, Helen attended Eliza R. Snow's schoolhouse connected to Joseph Smith's home. So that would have been a fascinating way to go to school. Uh, she, she, she was being taught by Eliza R. Snow. Her parents are these famous, you know, leaders in this growing religion. She uses the Book of Mormon as a textbook and would often go into the woods to recite passages of the New Testament from memory. When she was nine, her family left for Far West and Helen was, quote, delighted at the prospect of change. Although some of my little mates tried to frighten me with awful tales about being eaten alive by the Missourians, who were cannibals with horns. When the Kimballs arrived in Far West, the mob persecution had swelled and the family lived in constant fear. Only a half a year after their arrival, they were forced to leave in the dead of winter. The journey from Far West to Illinois was, Illinois was a trial to Helen and her family, and they moved from shelter to shelter and house to house until Heber returned from a church appointment and found them in May. Helen vividly recalls seeing her father Heber C. Kimball depart with Brigham Young to go on a mission. Heber and Brigham were very sick at the time, and the Kimball family was very sick as well. Helen would tear up years later when recalling the memory. They settled in very poor conditions in commerce, where the house had a dirt floor and the roof often leaked, and the family was just sick throughout this time. It was very, very hard on them and a hard, hard way to live. Helen recalled a funny anecdote from a visit from the Prophet Joseph Smith. Her father had sent her two China dolls from his mission, and when Joseph visited, he picked one up and looked at it, looked at it and broke its head off. So Helen wrote, quote, He merely remarked, As that has fallen, so shall the heathen gods fall. I stood there a silent observer, unable to understand or appreciate the prophetic words, but thought them a rather weak apology for breaking my doll's head off. 
Helen describes Nauvoo as an exciting time where things were constantly going on around her without cessation. She writes, quote, Our city was occasionally visited by Lamanites, and a deputation of Potawatomi chiefs were in the city, waiting to see Joseph when he returned from Dixon. And as soon as consistent after the trial was over, he received them. After being assured that all present were friends to Joseph, their orator arose and said, it being interpreted, We as a people have long been distressed and oppressed. We have been driven from our lands many times. We have been wasted away by wars until there are but few of us left. The white man has hated us and shed our blood until it has appeared as though there would soon be no Indian left. We have talked with the Great Spirit, and the Great Spirit has talked with us. We have asked the Great Spirit to save us and let us live. And the Great Spirit has told us that you are the man, pointing to the prophet. We have now come a great way to see you and hear your words, and to have you tell us what to do. Our horses have become poor traveling, and we are hungry. We will now wait and hear your words. Joseph was considerably affected, so much so that he wept. He said in return, I have heard your words. They are true. The Great Spirit has told you the truth. I am your friend and brother, and I wish to do you good. Your fathers were once a great people. They worshipped the Great Spirit. The Great Spirit did them good. He was their friend. But they left the Great Spirit and would not hear his words nor keep them. The Great Spirit left them, and they began to kill one another, and they have been poor and afflicted until now. The Great Spirit has given me a book and told me that you will soon be blessed again. The Great Spirit will soon begin to talk with you and your children. Raising the Book of Mormon, he said, This is the book which your fathers made. I wrote upon it. This tells me what you will have to do. I now want you to begin to pray to the Great Spirit. I want you to make peace with one another, and do not kill white men. It is not good. But ask the Great Spirit for what you want, and it will not be long before the Great Spirit will bless you, and you will cultivate the earth and build good houses like white men. We will give you something to eat and to take home with you. The prophet had an ox killed for them, and some horses were also prepared for them. They remembered the kindness of Joseph and his people, and when driven from our homes they made us welcome upon their land, where we were obliged to make our winter quarters. Helen loved music, dance, and theater. She would describe herself as a, quote, passionate lover of music. Her childhood and teenage years were filled with a fascination of the arts happening in the bustling and growing town of Nauvoo. It was becoming this cultural sort of epicenter of the area. Helen even joined the local choir and recounted several serenades the group had participated in. She wrote, quote, I had grown up very fast, and my father often took me out with him, and for this reason was taken to be older than I was. In 1843, Heber C. Kimball was involved heavily in Joseph's inner circle. I told you about that. He started getting really in on the secret happenings of Nauvoo. A year before, according to his son Orson, Joseph had approached Heber and asked for his beloved wife, Velate, to be a plural wife of Joseph Smith. This is, you know, I sometimes joke that this is... um this is, you know, when we say the term Abrahamic test, this was, this was Heber's Abrahamic test. This was, this was something that Joseph was said to have done sometimes. Um, he would approach people and tell them, ask for their wife and, uh, 
let them agonize about it for a while. And then he would say, kidding, kidding, let's see how you fared. So Hebert and Velate agonized over this request and for three days prayed and cried and prayed some more and were really upset. And finally, quote, with a broken and bleeding heart, but with soul self-mastered for the sacrifice, he led his darling wife to the prophet's house and presented her to Joseph. Joseph wept at this proof of devotion and embracing Heber told him that that was all that the Lord had required, end quote. And that account that I just quoted from comes from uh, Todd Compton. Joseph told Heber that it had all been a test like that of Abraham surrendering Sarah to the Pharaoh. Their reward for this righteousness and loyalty was that they got to be sealed for eternity. Shortly after, Joseph introduced the principle of plural marriage to Heber and asked him to take a plural wife. And Heber let Vlade choose, and she she chose two elderly Pitkin sisters. She said, "Sure, you can you can do this. Um, this I'm you know I'm relieved that I don't have to be Joseph's wife, but if you're going to do this, you have to marry these really old sisters." Joseph had other plans in mind for Heber. He had someone picked out. He had chosen Sarah Peak Noon, who was a convert from England with two small daughters. Heber was not pleased, and neither was Velade. Reluctantly, they agreed to this relationship. Um, unbeknownst to Helen, her parents start living the secret order of plural marriage. She has no idea. Helen remembers, quote, Though I have not the date, I remember the birth of another son by my father's wife, Sarah, which happened not far from the time that my mother's was born. I had no knowledge then of the plural order, and therefore remained ignorant of our relationship to each other until after his death, as he only lived a few months. It's true I had noticed the great interest taken by my parents in behalf of Sister Noon, but knowing their kind, benevolent natures toward everybody that came under their notice, I thought nothing strange of this. But I will confess that during those times... I thought my mother overly kind to always take her into her buggy and crowding me out of what I considered my place by her side, and I sometimes felt to complain, but unless I was willing to sit behind on a lower seat, I was welcome to walk or remain at home, but not caring to do either, I generally submitted, as gracefully as possible, to ride behind. My mother was possessed of a most kind and unselfish nature, and her life was filled up with just such noble self-sacrificing deeds and by them she won the love of all, and among the most devoted were my father's faithful wives, who admired him more because they knew he loved her best, and with him they mourned for her as their dearest and most enduring friend. Sometime after Heber began acquiring plural wives, Joseph again tested the couple, and this time he does it by not asking for Heber's wife, but asking for their only surviving daughter. Helen was only 14 when her father approached her. She wrote, quote, My father was the first to introduce plural marriage to me, which had a similar effect to a sudden shock of a small earthquake. Without any preliminaries, my father asked me if I would believe him if he told me that it was right for married men to take other wives. The first impulse was anger. My sensibilities were painfully touched. I felt such a sense of personal injury and displeasure. For to mention such a thing to me, I thought altogether unworthy of my father. And as quick as he spoke, I replied to him, short and emphatically, No, I wouldn't. This was the first time that I ever openly manifested anger towards him. 
Then he commenced talking seriously, and reasoned and explained the principle, and why it was again to be established upon the earth. This had a similar effect to a sudden shock of a small earthquake. Then Father asked me if I would be sealed to Joseph, and left me to reflect upon it for the next twenty-four hours. I was skeptical, one minute believed, then doubted. I thought of the love and tenderness that he felt for his only daughter, and I knew that he would not cast her off. This was the only convincing proof that I had of its being right. I knew that he loved me too well to teach me anything that was not strictly pure, virtuous, and exalting in its tendencies, and no one else could have influenced me at that time or brought me to accept of a doctrine so utterly repugnant and so contrary to all of our former ideas and traditions. Having a great desire to be connected with the Prophet Joseph, he offered me to him. This I afterwards learned from the Prophet's own mouth. My father had but one ewe lamb, but willingly laid her upon the altar. The next morning Joseph visited the Kimball home. He explained the principle of celestial marriage, after which he said to me, if you will take this step, it will ensure your eternal salvation and exaltation and that of your father's household and all of your kindred. This promise was so great that I willingly gave myself to purchase so glorious a reward. None but God and his angels could see my mother's bleeding heart when Joseph asked her if she was willing. She had witnessed the sufferings of others who were older and who better understood the step they were taking and to see her child, who had scarcely seen her fifteenth summer, following in the same thorny path. In her mind, she saw the misery, which was as sure to come. But it was all hidden from me. It was said that Helen's mother was very troubled by their proposal. She, she wasn't happy with the arrangement herself, and... Then her only daughter, at such a young age, was really troublesome. But she agreed, and in May of 1843, Helen married Joseph Smith. It's important to note that many people have a misunderstanding of marriage of the marriage age in the 1800s. Many will argue that an underage marriage to an older man was normal, or the way people did things back then. So to illustrate her sacrifice and explain her unusual uh, situation, you can look up the 1840 census records, which kind of explains the average age at first marriage. In 1840, the average census age uh, for women is estimated between 21 and 22 years of age. In 1950, the average age at first marriage dipped to about 20 years of age. And by 2005... The average age of first marriage for a woman is about 25 years of age. And I'm going to bring on Craig Foster, who's done an essay on the ages. He's done a lot of work on this. So he can talk about this more in detail. He's done a lot of research, and he can talk about more the age of marriages. It should also be noted that other men took on other underage wives, too, that this was not just Joseph Smith. Lorenzo Snow was one of them. There are some critics that say that perhaps... These these underage marriages were more secret because it was considered a social taboo at the time. During the winter of 1843 to 1844, there were weekly parties at Joseph Smith's mansion house. And Helen would often write about the social happenings at Nauvoo. Many of Helen's friends attended a certain dance, as well as her 16-year-old brother. Helen was not allowed to attend because she was now a married woman. 
which is, is kind of an odd paradox. Um, she's married and she can't go to this dance. She was really disappointed. So she wrote, quote, But I had to stay at home, as my father had been warned by the prophet to keep his daughter away from there because of the black legs and certain ones of questionable character who attended there. His wife Emma had become the ruling spirit, and money had become her god. I did not betray William, but I felt quite sore over it, and thought it a very unkind act in father to allow him to go and enjoy the dance unrestrained with others of my companions, and fetter me down. For no girl loved dancing better than I did, and I really felt that it was too much to bear. It made the dull school still more dull, and like a wild bird I longed for the freedom that was denied me, and thought myself a much-abused child, and that it was pardonable if I did murmur. I imagined that my happiness was all over, and brooded over the sad memories of sweet departed joys and all manner of future woes, which, by the by, were of short duration." my bump of hope being too large to admit of my remaining long under the clouds. Helen summarized her confusion with plural marriage in a poem. It seemed that she initially understood that this that she would only be married to Joseph for eternity only, but she soon found out she was married to him for time as well. I thought through this life my time will be my own. The step I now am taking is for eternity alone. No one need be the wiser. Through time I shall be free, and as the past hath been, the future still will be. To my guileless heart, all free from worldly care, and full of blissful hopes and youthful visions rare, the world seemed bright, the threatening clouds were kept from sight, and all looked fair. But pitying angels wept. They saw my youthful friends grow shy and cold, and poisonous darts from slanderous tongues were hurled. Untutored heart, in thy generous sacrifice, thou didst not weigh the cost, nor know the bitter price. Thy happy dreams all o'er thou'st doomed also to be, Barred out from social scenes by this thy destiny, And o'er thy saddened memories of sweet departed joys, Thy sickened heart will brood and imagine future woes, And like a fettered bird with wild and longing heart, Thou'lt daily pine for freedom and murmur at thy lot. But couldst thou see the future and view that glorious crown, Awaiting you in heaven, you would not weep nor mourn, Pure and exalted was thy father's aim. He saw a glory in obeying this high celestial law. For to thousands who've died without the light, I will bring eternal joy and make thy crown more bright. I'd been taught to revere the prophet of God and receive every word as the word of the Lord. But had this not come through my dear father's mouth, I should never have received it as God's sacred truth. In June of 1844, Heber was again away from home on church business and penned a letter to Helen. He wrote, quote, My dear daughter, be obedient to the counsel you have given to you. If you should be tempted or having feelings in your heart, tell them to no one but your father and mother. If you do, you will be betrayed and exposed. You are blessed, but you know it not. You have done that which will be your ever for your everlasting good for this world and which is to come. I will admit there is not much pleasure in this world. But true to the covenants that you have made, be a good girl, your affectionate father, end quote. Now, I've talked a lot about Heber C. Kimball, and we're going to talk about him more as we move through the series. But Helen's father, Heber C. Kimball, would eventually marry 43 wives. She wrote, quote, I had, in hours of temptation, when seeing the trials of my mother, felt to rebel. I hated polygamy in my heart. 
Helen would suffer from long bouts of physical illness throughout her life. Her health always seemed affected by her circumstances. She writes, quote, For three months I lay a portion of the time like one dead. I tasted of the punishment which is prepared for those who reject any of the principles of this gospel. Eventually, she was converted to polygamy and recovered from her illness. She would say, I fasted for one week, and every day I gained until I had won the victory. I learned that plural marriage is a celestial principle, and saw the necessity of obedience to those who hold the priesthood, and the danger of rebelling against or speaking lightly of the Lord's anointed. Shortly after, Joseph Smith was killed in Carthage. After the prophet's death in 1844, Helen found herself a widow at age 16. She began to form a strong relationship with 22-year-old Horace Whitney, of whom she had always fancied. Horace was a musician and loved books and theater, and the two seemed really well suited. On February 4, 1846, Helen Marr married Horace Kimball Whitney for time only. Shortly before her exodus from Nauvoo in the Nauvoo Temple, Helen, Helen was sealed to Joseph Smith Jr. for eternity, with her husband, Whitney, standing in as proxy for Joseph Smith. The next day, Whitney was sealed to Elizabeth Sykes, a deceased older woman, for eternity, with Helen standing in as a proxy for Sykes. So such an unusual way for young people to start their marriage. They, they get married to each other for time only, which means they get to spend their lives together. But Whitney gets sealed to a, a dead older woman for eternity, and uh, Helen stands in for her, and he stands in for her dead older husband, Joseph Smith. The couple shortly after began to travel west and endured a really difficult journey together. Helen wrote of the journey, quote, There were times when we girls would drop down by the roadside and vow that we would not rise again till we saw the tents pitched. Then we would take a straight line to the camp. I had not obtained sufficient religion to assist me, and as my strength failed me, so did my faith. But when the teams were ahead, our only alternative was to get up and travel on. Helen would go on to have 11 children with Horace and gave birth to her first child on May of 1847, while Horace was away on an expedition to Salt Lake City. Unfortunately, the child was stillborn. Helen wrote of the child, quote, the only bright star to which my doting heart had clung was snatched away, and it seemed a needless bereavement and most cruel. Helen's next two children would also die at birth. After the death of her first child, she fell into a great illness that lasted weeks. She was blessed by Persis Young Richards, who was Levi Richards' wife, and her mother, Velate, when they laid their hands on her head. Helen remembers that Persis, quote, was so filled with the spirit, she shook as though palsied when she laid her hands upon my head. She rebuked my weakness, and every disease that had been or was then afflicting me, and commanded me to be made whole, pronouncing health and many other blessings upon me, nearly all of which have literally been fulfilled. Helen recovered, but soon became sick again in her first winter in Utah. She thought she was thought to be close to death, and her illness attributed to demonic attacks. Helen would often attribute her sickness to sinfulness or her sort of rebellious nature. She felt like she had been punished for her, I guess, disapproval of some of the things with the gospel. She also noted that she, quote, had loved my baby more than my God and mourned for it unreasonably. 
and she believed she was punished with illness because of this for her pride. After time, fasting, and weeks of guilt, she began to slowly recover. Horace became one of the first staff compositors of the Desert News and worked in the tithing office of Brigham Young. Heber asked Horace to begin acquiring plural wives, but he was said to have only done so after gaining Helen's consent. He chose Lucy Amelia Bloxham, whom Helen believed would cause her the least amount of trouble. But Helen still agonized over the decision anyway. Horace wrote to Helen and promised her that she would always come first to him, and feeling guilty for her previous rebellion towards polygamy, which she believed she was being physically punished for, she tried, she really did try to accept the marriage. Lucy gave birth to the couple's first child and died three days later, her son Newell to soon follow. In June of 1853, Helen gave birth to a daughter named Velate Murray, who lived. She survived. She also bore a son, Orson Ferguson, and he would go on to survive as well. Horace took on another wife, Mary Cravath, in 1856 and would have three children with Horace. Helen recounts, quote, None can say with truth that I ever shirked from my duty, that I ever refused to help my husband to do right, that I ever stood in the way of his taking another wife, that he ever felt cast down and come to me for comfort that I did not try to show him the bright side and encourage him to do right. Never did I see Mary feeling sad when she had just cause, without feeling my heart drawn out in sympathy. If I thought that he appeared the least cool and caused her any unhappiness, I have never failed to reprove him, telling him that I could not feel happy and know that she was not. We always lived peaceably together. If there was any little misunderstanding, which generally was caused by our children, we would talk it over, and all would be as pleasant as before. Whichever of our children or ourselves stood the most in need of a dress or anything else, it was understood that they had the first claim, and no one ever thought of being jealous in consequence. We were like one family. Helen would go on to have many more healthy children, but suffered the loss of her oldest surviving daughter. Thalade died as a teen from tuberculosis, leaving Helen devastated. Her youngest child, Phoebe, passed away in 1874 from scarlet fever. These deaths would sort of set in motion um, more prolonged illnesses for Helen. During her illnesses, she managed to become a defender of polygamy and pr published uh, a booklet called Why We Practice Plural Marriage. It was a 72-page booklet defending polygamy. She also wrote extensively for the women's exponent. Horace would pass away, leaving the family with a number of debts and resources that had to be split between the families. Uh, Helen struggled more through more illness and the shock of her child, Jen, marrying a non-Mormon. She continued to write for the exponent, kept extensive journals, and was involved in the lives of her children. On November 15, 1896, she left her earthly tabernacle as her illness wore her down, and she died in Salt Lake City at the age of 68, surrounded by her family and friends. So that is the life of Helen Mar Kimball. Um, I would urge you to go and do some more in-depth re research. Brian Hales has some great stuff on his website about her, and Todd Compton's In Sacred Loneliness really goes into depth on her life and I think there's a lot there. She she was really affected by this practice early, early on at a young age and never seemed to sort of escape it. It was always around. So that's the story of Helen, Helen Mark Kimball. And uh, I hope you're enjoying this series. Go ahead and leave a donation if you feel so inclined. Uh, 
This takes a lot of research and a lot of work and I would be much obliged. So go ahead and leave your comments in the comment section at feminist and we will catch you again soon.